0: There's a World Series game. And it's the opening night of the Suns. Yeah. And there is a Republican presidential debate. So I know what I'm doing here. But I don't know what y'all are doing here. <laughs> but it's actually a testament to our wonderful speaker what y'all are doing here tonight. So thank you for being with us. It's uh, I'm always it's always a pleasure to recognize 90% of the room, the learners of our community who want to learn and grow. I'm thankful to Congregation Beth Israel, Rabbi Khan, Rabbi Keller, and staff for hosting us tonight. I'm gra- grateful to Professor Hava Samuelson and Ms. Eileen Sa- uh, Singer and the Center for Jewish Studies at ASU for being our co-sponsors this evening. Thank you for your partnership and for all the intellectual contribution you make into, the, into our community. Professor Jonathan Sarna, is the Braun Professor of American Jewish History and the Chair of the Hornstein Jewish Professional Leadership Program at Brandeis University. He's also the Chief Historian of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. He's the President of the Association for Jewish Studies, the AJS. He's the Chair of the Academic Advisory and Editorial Board for the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati. Dubbed by the Jewish Daily Ford as one of, the, of America's 50 most influential American Jews, he was the chief historian for the 350th commemoration of the American Jewish community and is recognized as a leading commentator on American Jewish religion, life, and history. Born in Philadelphia, Professor Sarna attended Brandeis University, the Boston Hebrew College, Mirkaz Harav Kook in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, and finally Yale University, where he obtained his doctorate. He has taught and lectured on four continents, has appeared in documentary films, and is regularly quoted in newspapers all over the world. Professor Sarna is perhaps the most prolific scholar in the field of American Jewish studies. He's published hundreds of scholarly articles and has written, edited, and co-edited more than 30 books. Some of them are available at the front, at the back. Additionally, he is the American Jewish historian, he is the only American Jewish historian ever elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As a teacher and mentor of mine, he is not only the most important American Jewish historian in American Jewish history, but also a sweet mensch and remarkable person and human being who you will enjoy not only as a scholar, but as uh, as a person who gives time to his students across the world every day. I'm so thrilled you're all here to learn tonight about a fascinating topic, Lincoln and the Jews. If you haven't picked up the book yet, again, I encourage you to pick it up and back. Please join me in giving a hand to our our wonderful speaker tonight, Professor Jonathan Sutter.
1: Thank you. Well, good evening. uh, boy, I rarely face the kind of competition that uh, I, uh, I, I have tonight, but uh, oh, I may not be Donald Trump, but, uh, uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, be here in uh, Arizona, and I especially want to congratulate um, uh, everyone connected with this Valley Bait Midrash program, it's an absolutely remarkable uh, roster of speakers, and uh, uh, and uh, in many ways, as I said earlier, to a group, uh, it's I think a model for other communities of how to utilize resources, work together, and cooperate uh, really to bring uh, uh, the, the finest in adult Jewish learning to a community. Now at uh, Someone who's going to change, they're not going to change themselves, those slides. I'm here. I'm not going to run back and forth. Uh, uh, so we need somebody who's going to run that. Le- when I uh, i make a, uh, uh, I'll tell you when to. Um, oh, you want to bring it up here? Oh, all right. See that? See that? That's right. You only need one finger. It only yeah, uh, Um. Hmm. Okay, is it gonna work? you are All right. All right. Uh, this year marks the uh, 150th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I remember as a teenager. Uh, visiting Jerusalem, and really being amazed uh, that even there, close by streets, yeah, this not going to work. Uh, yeah, find anti-Semitism everywhere. <laughs> 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 All right, no, no that didn't work. Not the next slide. What happened? It's only new for me doing all this technology. And, uh, anyway, I was amazed that even in Jerusalem, close by the streets named for uh, Jewish luminaries, uh, like Moses Maimonides and the Hebrew writer Terence Smolenskin, there's a street that reads uh, Abraham Lincoln, or uh, in Hebrew, and this is how the Israelis know it, Rahol Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, and uh, one day in at uh, the early 1970s, my late father was walking with me, here it is, and uh, thank you. And uh, this uh, uh, Rachel Abraham Lincoln, and with a <laughs> twinkle in his eye, he stopped someone uh, uh, on the street and he asked him uh, in Hebrew, who is this Abraham Lincoln? What did he do to merit a street in the middle of Jerusalem near Maimonides and Smolenskin and all these luminaries. So the person was stopped and he looked at that street sign and he thought for a minute. Then his eyes lit up and he said, Oh, yes, I remember. He was a very prominent Jew from America. He gave a big contribution to the United Jewish Appeal." So, fortunately, I don't have to uh, identify Abraham Lincoln to this audience, uh, but you may nevertheless wonder about Abraham Lincoln and the Jews. Uh, What's the relationship? Uh, How did Benjamin Chappelle and I fill this big book, Uh, 300 pages, on such a subject? And the answer to that question really turns out to reveal a lot about uh, Abraham Lincoln, about America, and really about the Jewish community of that time. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's life coincided with the emergence of Jews on the American scene. Uh, When he was born back in 1809, there were scarcely 3,000 Jews in the whole country. Uh, most of them concentrated about half a dozen port cities. By the time Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, those 3,000 Jews had ballooned into a community of 150,000 Jews, uh, largely uh, thanks to immigration from Central Europe. German, German, today the lands that are Germany and Poland. Uh, so Lincoln's interactions with Jews really form part of a much larger story. In microcosm, it's the story of how America begins to come to terms with its growing Jewish population and how both Americans and Jews were changed by that encounter. Now, growing up in Hardin County, Kentucky and Spencer County in Indiana, Lincoln probably encountered no living Jews. The only Jews he knew at that time were in the Bible, uh, which Lincoln had mastered and knew thoroughly. He is probably our most biblically literate a president, And you can find uh, biblical quotations, some of them very obscure uh, in his speeches, in his letters, in his writings. He knew it backwards and forwards. And there are a lot of Jews in the Bible. Uh, uh, by, <laughs> by 1850, though, Jews had spread from coast to coast, and, and Lincoln certainly encountered them, as we see, Uh, In in fact, most Americans by then had encountered some Jews. Uh, Overall, by the time of his death, Lincoln had accumulated over 120 (laughs) friends, associates, supporters, acquaintances. Of course, you can't see all of those names. You can buy the book and look at it close up, but um, the inner circle are those he knew well Uh, The outer circles are those he appointed, may not have known they were Jewish, but 120 is astonishing. No previous president came close to interacting with so many Jews and several presidents, including Buchanan, who preceded Lincoln, and, and Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, they were openly prejudiced against Jews, something that you do not find in Lincoln, either in his private correspondence or in his public utterances. Indeed, for fully half of his foreshortened life, Abraham Lincoln had Jewish friends and acquaintances, and he repeatedly, as we will see, intervened on Jews' behalf. Now the fact that he had Jewish friends and acquaintances is very important, we know. And you know, if you have a friend who's Jewish, well, you think better of Jews in general, and that was true of Lincoln. Just like if you have a friend who's African American or a friend who's Muslim, ah, well, how can you say that about the whole group? My friend is a wonderful person. So it was with Lincoln. He came to trust Jews because he came to know Jews. Lincoln felt especially close to Abraham Jonas, uh, a Jewish lawyer and politician from Quincy, Illinois.
0: It's
1: frozen again. Frozen. frozen. All right, <laughs> I thought only in Alaska. Okay, great. Arizona, all right. Uh, we're going to keep going. Um, uh, who he once described as one of his most valued friends, and um, uh, uh, and whom he uh, uh, exche- with whom he exchanged a number of letters. The most interesting letter uh, really concerns political. Strategy of which Jonas <coughs> was an acknowledged master. I was really amazed reading some of these letters to see a, a letter, <coughs> excuse me, in which Jonas talks about political strategy for the Republican Party. A new party, see what relate to the debates After all, a new party, how is it going to win the election? And Abraham Jonas, who was a master, says to him, "Uh, well, we need to, uh, there he is, we need to create an alliance of liberals and free-thinking Germans and Israelites. The idea was, even though there can't have been uh, more than 40,000, 50,000 Jewish voters, he had this sense. That Israelites should be part of the Republican Party's um, coalition. The Republicans have been trying to get Israelites to vote for them from that day to this day. But uh, (laughs) but but what's amazing uh, is really that here's Jonas who's providing some of that strategy. Um, And uh, when Lincoln comes to Quincy to debate uh, with um, uh, with Douglas. Um, uh, You can see Abraham Jonas uh, was uh, his host and the chief there, and most importantly, when the Republican Convention met in Chicago to decide who was going to be the Republican Party's uh, candidate, um, it was Jonas who made sure that there were plenty of people in that room who supported Lincoln. William Seward had tried to pack the hall with the idea that there'd be a big demonstration in Seward's behalf when his name was thrown into the nomination, and he'd get the nomination on the first ballot. Jonas got wind of that strategy, brought in all sorts of Lincoln supporters. They made an equal amount of noise when Abraham Lincoln was nominated, Seward did not get the nomination on the first ballot, and Abraham Lincoln um, then got it on the third ballot when people shifted uh, to him. And again, it's interesting, and it's easy to see, um, uh, why these two Abrahams uh, were good friends, and how Abraham Jonas, who understood politics so well, was able to craft a strategy Uh, that helped Lincoln uh, gain the nomination. Uh, Following Lincoln's election that November, there is another letter to him from Abraham Jonas. This big letter is confidential. And Abraham Jonas, they are warned, we're not there yet. I will get to it. Uh, uh, It's all right. Uh, Abraham Jonas um, uh, warns Lincoln that um, uh, uh, there is a plot Uh, against him, an assassination plot aimed to disrupt his inauguration. Jonas, like a lot of Jews at that time, had children in the South. The family was divided, North and South, uh, and his children had sent him this warning. He forwards it to Lincoln. Lincoln got other warnings, but as some will remember, Lincoln then sneaks into Washington uh, in the middle of the night in order to avoid those who were hoping to assassinate him uh, when he stopped uh, in Baltimore. So for all of these reasons, it comes as no great surprise that um, the very first person who Abraham Lincoln appoints uh, when uh, the first Jew whom Abraham Lincoln appoints after he becomes president is his friend Abraham Jonas, and he appoints him as postmaster in Quincy Uh, that's a rather lucrative patronage position and um, when which is really fascinating when Jonas dies Lincoln appoints his wife Louisa to succeed him a very rare case of a postmistress as it's called um, uh, being appointed Um, and it shows the connection between the family now, Lincoln makes a lot of other appointments once the war begins. Some of them were Jews. There's no evidence that he appointed people because they were Jewish. He appointed them because he thought they were hardworking and competent. But remarkably, and now those of you who've been looking at this letter, we get to it on November the 4th, 1862, Lincoln specifically, Appointed a New York Jew it's spelled here Sherry and he's often written that way but his real name was Chemi short for Nehemia Chemi leaving uh, to a military position because uh, as Lincoln wrote we have not yet appointed a Hebrew uh, this must be the first case of affirmative action uh, <laughs> for Jews in all of American Jewish history. Now this Chemi leaving was the son-in-law of Rabbi Morris Rafal of New York's B'nai Jeshurin. Some of you may know that name. Rabbi Rafal is remembered for having delivered a sermon prior to Lincoln's inauguration in which he justified slavery on the basis of the bible slavery mentioned in the ten commandments actually is as the rest on the saboteur slave and if slavery uh, he said uh, was good for the patriarchs why shouldn't it be good uh for today but you should treat the slaves uh better just like the bible says that was the core of his uh speech uh the enemy or the opponents there were very staunch jewish opponents of that speech pointed out that by the same logic, you know, just because the patriarchs did it, we should do it, you want to justify polygamy and concubinage, because uh, after all, the patriarchs did it, uh, we should do it uh, as uh, as well. Um, those of you who went to Sunday school at a certain era learned that a concubine is an assistant wife, so that's uh, uh, get the idea. Uh, in any case, um, once the Civil War broke out, uh, Rabbi Rafael actually becomes a staunch um, proponent of the Union. His son Alfred fights for the Union, actually loses an arm at Gettysburg. Um, but this Chemi is very interesting because this Hemi leaving is an Orthodox Jew. He is a practicing Orthodox Jew, not so common at that time. And um, in typical Lincoln wordplay, Lincoln writes, is well vouched as a capable and faithful man. Faithful means faithful to the Union, but a man of faith, and of course there were people who thought all Jews were smugglers, and Lincoln is implying, no, he's faithful, Uh, And as you can see, Lincoln appointed him assistant quartermaster with the rank of captain. Now, Lincoln made a much more important appointment of a Jew around that time. It literally changes American history. Uh, He appoints the first Jewish military chaplain. And... This is a story that really uh, bears remembering for its great significance in American history. When the Civil War began, the military chaplaincy was restricted by law uh, to, quote, regularly ordained ministers of some Christian denomination. Uh, Basically... uh, Most Americans were Christian and they put emphasis on the fact that they were regularly ordained uh, because there had been some irregular uh, uh, frauds in the past. But no sooner is there such a law, and we have the Civil War, Jews uh, in the thousands are fighting on the side of the Union, and there is a Jewish regiment that actually elects um, Reverend Arnold Fischel of Congregation Sherith Israel, a picture of him. with uh, Israel is today known as the Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue, and they elect him to serve as a chaplain uh, of a Jewish-led regiment. And uh, this year, you'll, you'll lose his picture, uh, um, uh, this comes before the Secretary of War, whose name was Simon Cameron, and Simon Cameron reads the law and has no choice but to turn Rabbi official down. <laughs> you are respectfully informed that the chaplain must be a regular ordained minister of some Christian denomination, he tells official, had it not been for this legal impediment, the department would have taken your application into its favorable consideration. Now, Fischl, like lots of Jews to this day, wasn't gonna take this lying down, there he is, he resolved to speak truth to power, and he uh, 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 he, um, sets out to fight for Jewish equality, And it becomes fairly clear that he has to go and persuade Abraham Lincoln uh, of the rightness of this cause. And that's what he does. Uh, He goes down to Washington, brings uh, uh, all of the papers with him, and uh, those of you who saw the Spielberg film, Remember that, um, and and it's absolutely accurate, there were all sorts of people outside Lincoln's office waiting to see him. Um, Lincoln was quite partial to clergy of all kinds. In this case, Fischel had also mentioned to a few people why he was coming. And he reports, the report survives, uh, he reports he goes down to Washington And to the astonishment of many, Lincoln immediately invites him in. And Lincoln reads the papers and, quote, fully admitted the justice of my remarks and agreed that something ought to be done. And Lincoln then works to craft, not easy to do, craft a bill uh, that would change this discriminatory law and make it possible for Jews to be chaplains. Of course, a lot of congressmen didn't want to have to run on the fact that they had changed the law that restricted the chaplaincy to Christians. So what do you do? If you're Lincoln, you uh, craft an amendment which doesn't change one word of the law, but construes the word Christian to mean religious. Didn't change the word. It construed, and I'm sure half of the congressmen didn't know what construe meant. Didn't. <laughs> uh, Lincoln then did an even cleverer thing. He buried the bill. The amendment deep inside of a bill that gave um, increases in pay to very popular generals. Then and now. Nobody votes against that kind of a bill. And then, no sooner does the bill pass that Lincoln does the most important thing, which is he creates facts on the ground. He appoints the first Jewish chaplain, a man named Jacob Franklin. Now, more than we realize, America at that moment was transformed because it meant that non-Christians of all sorts could henceforward serve in the military chaplaincy, as in fact they do to this day. So the fact that we have a Mormon chaplain, a Muslim chaplain, even a Wiccan chaplain, all goes back to the fact uh, that the word Christian was construed to mean religious, and the chaplaincy was opened up uh, to religious leaders of every kind. We're thinking uh, how America would have been different had it not been Lincoln, and how uh, ha- had they not uh, opened the chaplaincy to Jews? Jews would have been second-class citizens by law. So there's a very important moment. Um, the the uh, the fact uh, that Lincoln had no objection. Uh, to uh, the appointment of a Jew, and later he's going to appoint all sorts of other people. Uh, he appoints a universalist as a chaplain. Uh, he's actually willing to appoint a woman way ahead of his time, and uh, not a Jewish woman, but a spiritualist. By the end of the war, a lot of soldiers had died, and there was a movement called spiritualism. They thought they could talk to the spirits, there were unfortunately a great many spirits, uh, and uh, and one uh, 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 one regiment elects a woman spiritualist as chaplain, and Lincoln uh, says that uh, he has no objection to her appointment, however, in that case, the Secretary of War refused to sign on uh, on account of her sex, but Lincoln would have. Uh, and, and his uh, broad vision, I think because he himself was a religious outsider, um, uh, really explains why uh, he is uh, prepared, I think, to be inclusive in American religion in a way that so many others are not. Now, two days after he appointed that Jewish chaplain, Lincoln meets another Jew who would become important to him. Uh, His name was Issachar Zachary. Uh, Our friend Zachary was um, something of a mystery man, not only because you can't see him, uh, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, because... um, uh, But because uh, Zachary... um, uh, He's one of these figures. If you have biographies of Lincoln, he's one of the few Jews who you may find there. Um, There he is. Uh, um, uh, uh, But nobody can quite figure him out. Uh, He is described by one biographer as, well, Lincoln's most enigmatic intimate. I don't know if you'd like to be an enigmatic intimate of someone, but uh, (laughs) uh, that it. is this Zachary, his profession was a podiatrist. In the 19th century, podiatrists were known as chiropodists. Podiatrist is a new term. And um, uh, the truth is, I did an enormous amount of research on the history of chiropody, um, and it turns out it's a more or less Jewish profession. Jews were tremendously important in spreading chioppathy. I believe the reason for that is that then and now, uh, it's not uh, the most highly prized of the different medical professions. Uh, you know, people look up to oncologists, is not so much. And um, uh, that's why they let Jews enter that area of medicine. Feet problems, of course, were very common uh, in the 19th century, in part because most people lacked well-fitting shoes. The very notion that we take for granted of a right shoe and a left shoe that's fit uh, properly was not well understood at that time. You can all do an experiment. Go home, wave your right shoe on your left foot, your left shoe on your right foot, and you'll need a chiropodist too. Um, Abraham Lincoln's feet were known to be particularly painful. Some think he had um, a particular Morphan syndrome. Um, but Zachary um, uh, is, is clearly very skillful at curing problems, the preeminent chiropodists of his day, and he acquired hundreds of testimonials from different people uh, to prove it. Uh, uh, we have testimonials from Henry Clay, from John Calhoun, from senators, uh, from generals, and eventually Zachary goes and meets with Abraham Lincoln at the White House, and Lincoln writes him a testimonial uh, uh, here, um, and the testimonial is Vintage Lincoln. Dr. Zachary has, with great dexterity, taken some troublesome cords from my toes. He is now treating me, and I believe with success, For what plain people call backing. We shall see how it will end. Um, This is just wonderful. And in a brief way, you see characteristics of Lincoln. Brief letters, a lot of Lincoln letters are brief, it's to the point. He's associating himself with plain people, not talking of their billions, which he didn't have, uh, he, uh, and it is honest, he's not, he's known as Honest Abe for a reason, it's honest almost to a fault. I write a lot of, uh, uh, recommendations for students, I would never write at the end of a recommendation, oh, we shall see how he will end, <laughs> I don't think the guy would get a job, but, uh, Lincoln, um, uh, Lincoln did just that. Uh, it must have ended well, because Zachary and Lincoln meet on multiple occasions. Down here, this is just a couple of days later, but there were three testimonials, and then a lot of other evidence of their, of their meeting. Um, uh, and, and then Lincoln sends Zachary, whom he has clearly befriended, he sends him to New Orleans, really, to be a spy. Uh, New Orleans has just come back into the Union, and Lincoln not only tells him, you know, look around and find out what's going on, but he also describes that going to New Orleans, he can be a means of access to his countrymen, who are quite numerous. Now, Lincoln uses countrymen to mean Jews, even though they didn't have a country, but those were his people. And of course, New Orleans had very significant Jews. (coughs) Benjamin had been in New Orleans. It's a very significant Jewish community. Some uh, Jews in New Orleans were quite high up in society and we know perfectly well. Uh, that, uh, that Zachary spent a lot of time uh, helping those Jews and he helped on both sides. On the one hand, he reported uh, tried to bring them to support the union and, and so on. On the other hand, uh, he assists Jews who got into trouble, uh, who were taken captive for smuggling or related crimes. And actually, the Jewish community later honors him uh, for his work in New Orleans at that time Uh, but what exactly he did is still something of a mystery. Uh, Zachary then got into his head like so many did in the Civil War that he could personally figure out some way to bring the war to an end and he tries like so many did to have a secret mission to uh, make peace. We know he actually meets with Judah Benjamin. This is a kind of Jewish claim uh, to end the Civil War. We have a letter, uh, when they met, like almost every such effort, it ended in failure. Uh, And he then comes back and Lincoln puts him to work on his reelection campaign in 1864. And there is, A surprising letter from Zachary to Lincoln in which uh, Zachary writes As regards the Israelites, with but few exceptions, they will vote for you. I have secured good and trustworthy men to attend them on election day. Uh, This is, I think, the first organized get-out-the-vote campaign directed to the Jewish community uh, in the history uh, of the United States. It's really astonishing that uh, in 1864 there was an organized effort to get Jews to vote for Lincoln, uh, but that's what we discovered. Now, Jews, of course, had very good reason to vote for Lincoln in 1864, Uh, not only had he appointed Jews to office, but in late 1862, he had refused to heed anti-Semites who blamed Jews for wartime smuggling, and he unhesitatingly overturned uh, General Ulysses S. Grant's notorious order, General Orders Number 11, expelling Jews as a class from his entire war zone. Uh, Here's a case where I wish Spielberg had used a Lincoln quote. It is still, I think, a very uh, timely quote uh, from Lincoln. uh, uh, Well worth remembering. To condemn a class, Lincoln explained, is to say the least to wrong the good with the bad. I do not like to hear a class or nationality condemned on account of a few sinners. I'm still worth remembering today. Lincoln also shifted his official rhetoric to make America more inclusive of Jews. Early in his presidency, like every president before him, he sort of reflexively talked of America as a Christian country and spoke about a Christian people and so on. But Jews um, protested. And by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, where Jews fall side by side with Christians and Jews also play a quite significant role, um, uh, Lincoln has come to realize Uh, that Jews are not Christians and are offended by the term Christian people. And therefore, in the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln invents a new term. While Edward Everett, who spoke for two hours on that occasion, talks of uh, Christianity all the time as if no Jews had fallen, that's not what Lincoln does. Those who have to learn the Gettysburg Address can go over it in their mind he invents a new term, which is this nation under God. That, of course, is an inclusive term that allows Jews to be embraced as insiders. And uh, I don't think that is accident. Um, Similarly, in Lincoln's second inaugural, which is a magnificent sermon, really,
0: Uh, But again there, he
1: does not mention any particular religion. He addresses people of all faiths and implicitly Jews among them. Ours is a more inclusive country today, thanks in part to Abraham Lincoln's words and actions. Now, of course, Lincoln's willingness to be inclusive of Jews parallels his far better-known efforts to abolish slavery and grant legal equality
0: to black Americans.
1: And what's important is that in the eyes of a lot of 19th century people, persecution of Jews and persecution of blacks were linked. Uh, These were the outsiders, and to Lincoln, the connection between eradicating the persecution of one and ending the persecution of the others of it must have seemed obvious uh, there was a common philosophy underlying I think both his attitude towards Jews and his eventual attitude towards freeing the slaves and that is a passionate belief in human equality Abraham Lincoln's last week of life was closely, almost eerily, uh, connected with Jewish life. Um, His surrender, uh, Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox courthouse, which really marks the ultimate demise of slavery, in fact, occurred just one day before Jews sat down to the Passover Seder. And that was noted at the time, uh, which is amazing. Uh, in Boston, where I live, the Daily Advertiser pointed, quote, to the coincidence that the modern people of bondage, meaning southern slaves, had seen their deliverance confirmed and nearly consummated about the same season of the year as Passover. And then a couple of days later, just as many Jews were sitting down to Second Seder, Abraham Lincoln delivered what turned out to be his last public address. The subject was post-war reconstruction, and the speech included Lincoln's most explicit statement on black suffrage. Uh, That's the speech where He urges that uh, the very intelligent be given the elective franchise and that blacks who were serving in the Union Army be allowed to vote. Uh, The popular but deranged young actor, John Wilkes Booth, I do have a picture of him, but I don't know if it will come up. Um, uh, They, 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 you can forget it if not. Uh, John Wilkes, you know what John Wilkes Booth looks like. Uh, uh, His... uh, Father imagined himself to be of Jewish descent. Um, he heard Lincoln's address on that second night of Passover. and uh, He understood exactly uh, what uh, the president meant by this uh, discussion of freedom for head slaves. He is reputed to have said, now by God I'll put him through. That is the last speech he will ever make. Friday night for Jews was, of course, the, uh, that's Booth, keep going. Okay, stop there. Friday night for Jews was the start of Shabbat and the fifth day of Passover. Many Jews, Shabbat Cholomoet Tessa, sit down for a Friday night dinner. Of course, those of you who read biographies of Lincoln know it's also Good Friday. That's in all the biographies somehow. They didn't put in that it was Shabbos Bola Moed as well. But uh, but anyway, uh, uh, and that Friday night, uh, Abraham Lincoln and his wife, along with two guests, famously travelled to Ford's Theatre, and everybody here knows what happened next. All books on Lincoln, including mine, I guess, uh, essentially end with a bang. Um, Unconscious and bleeding, Lincoln was carried across the street to a boarding house. You can still see the room where Abraham Lincoln lay in that boarding house, and it's actually a very small room. But so many people remembered, in quotes, being with Abraham Lincoln on that night, that when Alonzo Chappell painted this very famous painting, he had to make the room as big as this room uh, in order to fit all the people in. But what I wanted you to see uh, was this man over here. Um, uh, 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 his name is Dr. Charles H. Lieberman, and uh, he uh, was a Russian born uh, Jewish surgeon. He was an oculist, he was president of the Medical Society uh, of the District of Columbia, uh, and he was one of the central physicians who tended Lincoln uh, uh, after he was shot. uh, He arrives at the bedside, uh, uh, he pours brandy down the president's throat, uh, and then, alas, he diagnosed the gunshot as fatal. Now, uh, Abraham Lincoln expired early on Saturday morning, and news of his death spread quickly. In New York, a word hit just as Jews were proceeding to uh, their places of worship for the service of the Sabbath, of Passover, according to the newspapers. In other words, they hear the news just as they enter shul. In San Francisco, Elkin Cohn of Congregation Emanuel, the famous Reform congregation in San Francisco, was handed a note with the news, Just as he was ascending the pulpit on Saturday, and he was so overcome that he burst in tears and sank almost senseless. The point is that as a result of the fact that so many Jews happened to be either in synagogue or on their way there when word of Lincoln's death became known, it turns out that many of the first prayers memorializing Abraham Lincoln were actually Jewish ones. And again, I was fascinated to find a contemporary uh, who pointed that out. It is a singular fact a man named Adolfo Solomon pointed out in 1865 that it was the Israelites' privilege to be the first to offer in their places of worship prayers for the repose of the soul of Mr. Lincoln. Um, And some of them are quite interesting at Temple Emanuel in New York. um, They said the cottage for Abraham Lincoln at Shehra's Israel, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. The Sephardic Prayer for the Dead was recited, according to the New York Times, which is never wrong. This marked the first time in the history of Judaism in America that these prayers have been said in a Jewish house of worship for other than one professing the Jewish religion. Now, recalling the Jewish memorialization of Lincoln and the whole story of Lincoln and the Jews serves, I think, as a timely reminder that Jews really formed an integral part of the history of the United States and an integral part of the biography of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Throughout my career really, my message to Jews has been that American history is not just somebody else's history. They need to own that history as well. Abraham Lincoln, it turns out, had a similarly capacious view, one that embraced as Americans people of different races and religions and ethnicities. Both of those aims, to broaden their understanding of American Jewish history and to broaden our understanding of Abraham Lincoln, underline this lecture... Thanks very much. So we owe you a few pictures that you got cheated out of, but uh, uh, I'm happy to take an extra question to make up for them. So any questions that people have? Uh, on Lincoln or uh, anything related to Jews and the Civil War or anything else for that matter, I'm happy to try and answer. Yeah, thank uh,
0: Just a reminder that we don't—we're not as interested in comments. We're interested in uh, short questions.
1: Thank you. Um, this was a very fascinating lecture. You indicated that Lincoln
0: was of, of a different religion
1: was my question. What was he? Lincoln uh, was a, a, a religious outsider. His parents, he, his parents, belonged um, to. They were anti-missionary Baptists uh, in um, uh, in in Indiana and, and Illinois. That's interesting. It's, and and they were deeply fatalistic, meaning. That they believed everything had been predetermined. That's why they're opposed to missionizing. If God made you a Jew, you're a Jew. Uh, There's nothing that anybody can do about it. Um, Now, part of the religion of his parents, as as would be true in, in that church today, was that you were only a Christian if you had had a conversion experience. And poor Abraham Lincoln never had that experience. And that's why he just was never certain, am I one of the elect? Am I even a Christian? Um, He uh, uh, really had all sorts of religious questions and doubts, and much of his life he is wrestling with deep theological issues. The second inaugural is a good... Uh, indication of that. But his he doesn't join his parents' church because he hadn't had that experience. His wife belongs to a church. It's not clear that he attended one, but he's deeply religious. Um, uh, but he's something of a religious outsider as his parents were. Most Americans uh, you know, did missionize and uh, had moved on from from at uh, the kind of small church that, that his parents uh, still belong to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah? Um, you, we like that,
1: oh, sorry, I'm, I'm causing trouble, like mm-hmm. usual. He, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll let, or, or but, or but, sure, but this man really gets understand. a question. Okay. If not, come um, time. I'll answer personally. Yeah? You mentioned that Lincoln had an archangel. Was there any proof of that? I mentioned, I didn't hear it. Can you repeat it? You mentioned that Lincoln oh right Uh, no there's no so the question was uh, about this syndrome and indeed I'm not a doctor there is a big historical controversy over whether Lincoln did or did not have uh, that syndrome Uh, we do know that he had very painful feet but that's not proof of the and and of course uh, there were part of the the, the idea was that his height, uh, and other things all fit that syndrome, but I actually read articles on both sides. Today, of course, all doctors agree on everything, but um, uh, the doctors don't agree on whether he did have the syndrome, didn't have the syndrome, and fortunately nobody has extracted DNA uh, from uh, the Lincoln tomb, so... um, you know, uh, all I can say is when Elijah comes, we can ask him. Yes. Hi, uh thank you so much for this. Um, we know that uh, Lincoln had a deep uh, love of Shakespeare, and I'm wondering if he ever
0: um, said anything about Shakespeare's view of Jews, or, or if that played a role in any of his letters or anything.
1: Like that. I did not ever run across. Um, I, mention uh, you know of Shylock for discussion but remember that in America in the middle of the 19th century you would begun to have a very sympathetic um, uh, merchant of Venice depictions of Shylock there was this new view of, of, of Shylock that some actors had and of course the greatness of Shakespeare, is that you can read Shylock both ways. So while I've got to imagine that Lincoln saws because he went to the theater a lot. There wasn't television. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, um, and I I, uh, I don't I am not familiar at least and I did you know try and go through everything. I'm not familiar with any comment on that subject, but it is a good question. Yeah,
0: professor. Uh, Professor, were there any anomalies in the Jewish relationship to slavery? Uh, Jews in the South, was was there anything unique about how
1: they were slave owners and Jews in
0: the North, anything unique about their advocacy
1: for abolition? You know, one would love to be able to report that, you know, Jews who remembered that they had been slaves in Egypt were not slaveholders and, like the Quakers, opposed slavery. I'd love to be able to report it. The only problem is it's not true. Um, The the truth is Jews were not very different than their neighbors. Um, Southern Jews tended to have slaves. Obviously, northern Jews, um, uh, slavery had been abolished in most of the north by the time the bulk of the Jews got there. Very few Jews owned plantations, which is where, the largest number of slaves were. They didn't own plantations because most of them were new immigrants and couldn't afford it. Judah Benjamin did have um, a plantation um, and, uh, and, and lots of slaves. Um, there were some Jewish immigrants who start off in the South, cannot abide slavery, and move north. Um, uh, in the Oaks family that's the family of the New York Times uh, they reported that story. There were Jews in Pittsburgh who moved Pittsburgh from the south uh, in part because they they couldn't abide slavery. Uh, But others you know that was just uh, um, the custom of the place and you know uh, uh, they thought we should follow the local custom. A reminder Uh, that sometimes following in the ways of one's neighbor gets you into trouble. Uh, But Jews followed what their neighbors did. Thank you. Professor Simon, why did General Grant expel the Jews? And did President Lincoln ever articulate his
0: reason for the reversal of that order? And finally, was there ever a face-to-face confrontation where President Lincoln articulated those reasons to General Grant?
1: So, um, Thank you uh, for that. I actually did a whole book uh, called When General Grant Expelled the Jews on that subject. That's another lecture and another book. I don't know if there are any copies outside. But let me, on one foot, um, uh, tell the story. Um, Grant believed that one of the things that was uh, keeping the war going and keeping the South going Uh, was the fact that a lot of smuggling was going on between the North and the South. Uh, And he believed that if, indeed, the South couldn't sell its cotton and couldn't get food, clothing, and medicine from the North, uh, that the Civil War would come to an end soon. Um, Now, he also knew that some of the people whom his troops captured smuggling were Jews, and he wrongly concluded that because some of the, tro- of, the, of the people his troops caught were Jews, all Jews were smugglers. Uh, furthermore, uh, his own father had a little scheme with a Jewish clothier named Matt from Cincinnati to move southern cotton north. Uh, clothing manufacturers needed cotton and the idea was that the elder Grant would get his son to uh, allow the cotton to move, and they'd get 25% of the money. Um, what the Jews didn't realize was that the relationship between the elder Grant and the younger Grant wasn't very good. When Ulysses realized that even his own father is trying to smuggle cotton, and you know, then the Jew, instead of expelling his father, he expelled the Jews. Um, So all of that goes into explaining uh, the expulsion. A heroic Jew from Paducah, not so many Jews were actually affected because fortunately for Jews, um, uh, soon after issuing that order, Grant's troops were attacked and as part of that attack though the telegraph wires were cut. Since the telegraph wires were fortuitously cut, the order spread very slowly. Uh, It takes 11 days for it to get to Paducah. When it gets to Paducah, they do indeed expel the Jews who were there. There there are not that many uh, Jews (coughs) there, but they hold significant positions. And one of those Jews goes to Washington directly, to uh, get Lincoln to overturn the order. I traveled day and night, kind of like Paul Revere, and you know, except he said, Grant is coming. And um, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, gets to Washington, does a, he did two smart things. Uh, number one, he um, carried a copy of the order with him, and number two, Uh, he uh, went to see a congressman and went to Lincoln with that congressman, so Lincoln uh, brought the men. Lincoln, of course, knew nothing about the order. No copy reached Washington. And indeed, there was some very considerable doubt as to whether the order was genuine. And that's why if you read the telegram that they send back to Grant, It says, if such an order has been issued, it is hereby revoked. And that was to make sure that maybe it was a fraud. Um, uh, But of course, later they discover that indeed he issued it, and I already read that wonderful uh, statement that Abraham Lincoln gave, that he uh, doesn't like to hear a class um, uh, Single down on account of a few uh, sinners. Um, so that's really uh, the story. Of course, what's amazing is that the timing is exactly uh, just a few days before the Emancipation Proclamation. So you have the irony that Lincoln is freeing the slaves just as Grant is expelling the Jews. But fortunately... Very few Jews were affected, I, I doubt even a 100. Um, and, uh, and as I say, really, as soon as the news gets to Washington, the order is overturned. Um, which, uh, and later, I should just add the coda, which is also in this book, um, which is that in 1868, Grant apologizes. see, this is a big issue when Grant runs for president, and Grant apologizes, which is amazing. After all, Ferdinand and Isabella never apologized. Oops, we shouldn't have expelled the Jews in Spain. As far as I know, Tsar Nicholas never apologized. Oops, what a mistake, those pogroms. Um, uh, uh, So that a man like Grant apologized is amazing, and he didn't just apologize. His presidency was fabulous from a Jewish perspective. He appoints all sorts of Jews to office, and when Jews are persecuted in Romania and Russia, uh, Grant um, uh, strongly supports Jews. So through his actions, he showed that he had changed. When Grant died, he's mourned across the Jewish world. So it really shows how you can move from being Haman to being mortified. Um, and uh, uh, he really is uh, a, tra- a transport. Yeah, yeah. Now
0: yeah, really
1: Lincoln. I mean, because the party it was a new party. Can you speak up? I mean, Much later. Actually nobody imagined that Jews were overwhelmingly Democratic in the 19th century. Jews supported both Republicans and Democrats and many Jews in the North, not in the South, supported the party of Lincoln. Uh, in Grant's second election, not his first, uh, Jews vote for him by a very wide margin. And in fact, Jews run away from the Democrats, many, uh, when they put up William Jennings Bryan because William Jennings Bryan famously announces, I will not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. And a lot of Jews got nervous about that kind of rhetoric and they ran uh, to the Republicans. Jews returned. To the Democrats in the 20th century, first with Woodrow Wilson. So, for example, Louis Brandeis, who had voted Republican and supported, I have to mention Brandeis once in every lecture, today, <laughs> uh, had uh, supported the Union. And, and there he moves over to Woodrow Wilson, who was appointed to the Supreme Court. And other Jews, like Stephen Wise and others, all moved to Wilson. And then uh, we see a very strong Jewish support for Al Smith and Roosevelt, by which time the socialist parties and the liberal parties have also come out to Roosevelt. Roosevelt is supposed to have received 90% of the Jewish vote. Who knew that 90% of Jews ever agreed on anything? (laughs) But so it is. And uh, since that time, Um, Democrats, as you say, have routinely received a majority of the Jewish vote, meaning over 50%, usually between 60 and 80%, the only exception being Jimmy Carter in his second term, the only Democrat who received less than 50% of the Jewish vote, of course, did not win the second term. so, but that's really a 20th century story, not the case in the 19th century. And actually, you'll find a curious thing of quite a few Jews who were members of the Republican Party because they felt it was the party of Lincoln and they owed it to him, and they voted Democratic anyway, but they nevertheless paid dues to the Republicans. My wife's grandfather, was an example that had a bust of Lincoln in his house. Um, they actually go back to the Civil War, an unusual case of Jews who uh, was my my wife from good Jewish German Jewish background, and they had bust of Lincoln, and uh, he felt the party of Lincoln uh, should be supported, but he wasn't sure some of the Republican candidates lived up to Lincoln's legacy. So he voted Democratic.
0: To uh, garner the wisdom to address our future, we not only have to learn from our current situation, but we have to look back at our Jewish texts and our history. And I think of no one better to learn about Jewish